Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Russ Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax and enjoy the show. Martin, how are you today? Yeah, I'm really well. I've had a lovely week and everything that's in my entry of interests are, are flowing nicely. So it's been a really good time. Thank you. Fantastic. And we are continuing our exploration of the fourth noble truth or the, the eightfold path. And we've covered already some discussions around um, right understanding, right intention, uh, right speech or communication. And t- today's topic is going to be looking at right action or activities. Um, but as we have done on previous conversations, I think it would be really useful just to, again, if we can summarize why it is we're looking at, um, firstly, the Four Noble Truths and, and what they are, uh, why we think that it's important to to know these and and understand these and then more specifically what we're looking at on on the eightfold path sure to me the four noble truths and the eightfold path was almost like a formula for remembering what the buddha initially taught two and a half thousand years ago because you know if you take the comparison with with christianity jesus was alive and teaching for three years. According to the stories, the Buddha was alive and teaching for 45 years. So you imagine the immensity of teachings. And this guy's teaching on about social behaviours, he's teaching on psychology, he's teaching on emotional volatility, and he's teaching on what is a good life and how do you achieve a good life. Now, if you've got 45 years of that stuff, it's an enormous amount. So somebody, either himself in his later life or else some of his followers, had to try and codify it. Otherwise, it would be so unwieldy. So hence the the, the formula of the Four Noble Truths followed by here's how you get to being peace of mind and being happy. And the Four Noble Truths are the... Life is filled with dissatisfaction, frustration, suffering. You know, not all the time, obviously, but we've got our ups and downs, and that's not ideal. The second truth is the understanding that an awful lot of that is in, caused inside ourselves. It's our reactions to events rather than the events themselves, or sometimes there's no events and you just wake up feeling grumpy or you wake up feeling down. So there's, there's an internal mechanism going on and he called that thirst or grasping, was basically we want certain things in life. We want life to be a certain way. And of course, life doesn't always provide it that way. So you get frustrated that you can't get what you want, and you get frustrated that 
things that you don't want around you all the time. Then the third truth is that he says, well, he worked out for himself over six years and trying to experiment that you can actually resolve most of this, much of this, and the result is that you feel at peace. And this is the word nirvana, originally nibbana in, in Pali um, language. And the other word is enlightenment that's used. Sometimes it's called liberation, and that's a really interesting phrase. The idea is that nirvana meant to extinguish flames. And the flames that you're extinguishing are your reactions, your frustrations, your negativity, you're dousing them. And when you douse the flames, everything becomes cool again. So it's that sort of mental metaphor, if you like. And the fourth noble truth is, well, you can't just get there. You have to work at it. And the fourth noble truth is, here's the way you get to it. So then we started on the, the path, the eightfold path. And it starts with right understanding, which is what I've just described. The four noble truths is right understanding. And by right, we don't mean right or wrong. What we mean is skillful, thoughtful, you know, non-reactive, bit of consideration. So consideration of understanding is that, yeah, life does throw these things up and down for us. Yeah, it does tend to come from within. So that understanding there. Then you've got right intention or right thought, right thinking. So again, it's skillful thinking, skillful intentions. If somebody criticizes you or criticizes one of your family, oh, classic example, just popped up in my head, Will Smith. So at the Oscars, somebody blurted out something, he couldn't control his response, went up, whack, and all sorts of repercussions are there. Now, right thinking would be a recognition of knowing, which comes from mindfulness, we'll explain later. But it's seeing that you're in the wrong frame of mind and then to try and get your mind into more skillful or thoughtful things and say, I'm going to have it out with this guy verbally after these things are happening, but let the thoughts die away just now. Now's not the right time. So that's an example of skillful thinking. And from skillful, thoughtful thinking comes then the next few that we'll be discussing. So we talked about last time, right speech. Now, when we talk about speech, now it's all communications, emails, sort of text messages, sort of stuff online on Twitter or whatever, on LinkedIn. And, but it's the same process. Try and think about it. If you think skillfully, your communication should naturally be skillful. It's, it's a choice. Should you use that word, it's a wee bit derogatory. Should you use that word, it's a wee bit hurtful. You know, it's a wee bit strong for what you're actually trying to say. And therefore, it's this calmness and consideration that goes into the communication. And now we're talking about it's not only words that come out when we think. It's sometimes actions or decisions or activities that we do. And they should also be right. In other words, they should also be thought about. We should be skilled in what we do. So gut feeling when you're tired is maybe just to open up a can of coke and slug it down. Now, 
my daughter happened to go to the dentist yesterday for the first time in two years because of COVID. And the dentist said, how much fizzy drink do you, you use? And she says, well, the dentist said, it's wearing away your enamel. You shouldn't be doing that. Now, therefore, skillful action is not to just go with the automatic reaction, I'm thirsty, I'll take a fizzy drink because I love the taste. It's to think, oh, there's a downside to that. Maybe my actions should be more considerate of my body, in this case, my teeth. So right action is that process by which we make decisions on the basis of what is best in a given situation. And that can be in a moment or in a lifetime. It can be for ourselves or it can be for everyone around us. Yeah, and obviously we're going to dig into... um right action and, and right activities uh, a little more on this uh, or in this conversation before we do so though something popped into my mind when you were explaining about the teachings of um, the buddha over 45 years and and that was at a time where there was none of the current kind of modern technological communication methods and i wonder what um, a podcast recorded by um, the Buddha would sound like. I wonder how close um, we are in terms of the, the the interpretation of it, because it's been two and a half thousand years, and there's forty five years of teachings. Just imagine if that could have been captured in the way in which we're capturing what we're talking about. It'd be mind blowing. Oh, absolutely! And in a way, we're very lucky because the oral tradition passed on this stuff for hundreds of years before it got written down. I think two or three hundred years. Um, that's an amazing, that's like 12 generations or something, um, just being passed down. Now, the downside to that is, of course, how much of the original Buddhist teachings are in that, how much of other people added to it their own interpretations, how much have been sort of misunderstandings or poor listening. You know, it's, it's almost like the sort of the spoofs um, in the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian, you know, mm-hmm. when we say, blessed are the cheesemakers, when you say, blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> you know, and, and that's so easily done. Um, now, over a couple of hundred years, that can be completely skewed. But the beauty is that whoever taught this and however it got transmitted down through the generations, it's still a remarkable work of insight about how to live. Um, not only conceptually and philosophically and psychologically, but actually practically how, how to do it. So, um, yeah, oh, I wish it had been amazing to have actually heard him because my view is that he wasn't the founder of a religion. He was an, a person who tried to understand and resolve human suffering. Um, so from that point of view, you think he's like a, an activist but he's also experimented on himself to see how do you deal with emotions? How do you deal with your thoughts? And to have got that on a podcast would have been absolutely astonishing, you know, to do it. I think the closest people now probably are Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's just sadly recently died. Um, They're the people in my lifetime who have most accurately attempted to try and put those thoughts into the public domain with their own interpretations, especially Thich Nhat Hanh, who's Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Um, he radically looked at Buddhism 
and and from a Zen point of view, um, and try to say, well, you know, it's not two and a half thousand years ago now. You're talking about wars between ideologies, communism versus capitalism. You've got exploitation. You've got environmental crises. How do you interpret those teachings in that context? So he, he to me, was is probably the greatest thinker and activist of my lifetime. Yeah, and I, I think the, the example you zoned in terms of the, the lessons have kind of lasted and, and been proven to be relevant, even though the teachings were two and a half thousand years ago. Firstly, I think that, that highlights to me the strength of the insight that the Buddha had into the human mind and the, the way in which the world operated. But that would have been at a time, again, where there was no access to, as we have, social media, where we can get news from the other side of the world 10 seconds after it happens, um, good and bad in, in that sense. And I guess that the increase in my perception of the relevance of mindfulness and mindful thinking is because there is that access to instant news and instant kind of it can be very easy to be bogged down by the doom and gloom in the world but that's more because we're aware of it rather than the fact that it's new and that it wasn't around two and a half thousand years ago because it was life expectancy was um far less the, the you know the kind of the, the modern society that we've created all the all the brilliant and, and good elements of that weren't there and but, but it can feel sometimes as if you know, there's so much bad happening in the world because we're so aware and able to get instant access to it. It almost says to me that there's more relevance for right thinking, for right interpretation, for for the, the teachings that we've been covering in these shows. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. We live a very unnatural life nowadays. If you take, if you go back to, say, the Buddha's time, <clears throat> and say here in Scotland or down in England, you know, where you are, then you're talking about 500 BC. The Romans haven't come yet. You know, you're, you're talking about little tribes of people with their own difficulties, natural problems, disease, sort of other tribes fighting. So, but that didn't mean that life was necessarily unhappy. You know, there'd be happy times, there'd be unhappy times. But they wouldn't know that there was a country called Japan, you know, which wouldn't be called Japan at that time, but, you know, they wouldn't know that existed. They wouldn't even know possibly that Italy existed, although there, were tra there was trading much more than we, we, we sort of appreciate in those days. But if you think then that fast forward 500 years and the Romans are now kind of at their peak. They've invaded Britain and, you know, they've got Gaul, they've, they've got all over. They're even Alexander the Great, you know, in the Greek times, you know, he's gone to India. But again, nobody in Japan for four or 500 years would even have known any of that happening because their life was local. And when you live a local life, there's much less trauma. There's much less bad news because there's only bad news for about 600 people, you know, not 60,000 or 6 million or 6 billion. And life is so much slower. You can't get from a place to another place. Communication takes ages. And that is how a human being has evolved to live in. Slow-paced, 
yeah, danger. So you need to be aware, need to be checked things out. But you don't get 45 bad messages a day, every day, you know, about you know, babies being bombed in Ukraine or, or whatever's happening in the world just now. These things just don't reach you or they reach you as myths years later or myths later or months later. So we have to be much more consciously active in terms of protecting our minds and choosing, and this is where the right action and right activities happens. Um, by default, most people watch the news maybe every night or maybe two, three times a day, maybe five times a day, just flick on, flick off. And most of the news is the exceptional stories of life. And many exceptional stories are exceptionally negative. So what we're getting is stuff that is not related to our lives at all, going into our head that are all heightened stories, and most of them are negative. And that goes into you. It goes into you mentally in the exact same way as food and drink goes into you bodily. And it has an effect. What you consume changes you. This is neuroplasticity. The, the mind changes with experience. So we have to be very careful about what we take in. And so that's just the news. That's not even going into social media, really. Yeah. Which, I mean, we won't go too much into social media because we could get dragged into a, a rabbit hole as much as social media can become that. We could just get dragged down and, and to, to yeah. talk about and it. And the podcast is, of course, a form of social media. Yeah, um, so absolutely. we are part of this. But hopefully this part of it is trying to help people to deal with all the other parts of it. Yeah. Not, not contributing to some of the negativity being the uh, the opposite of that and, and trying to spread some um, positive news and, and positive actions, I guess. And I think that obviously we're looking at right action um, and, and right activities. And again, to reiterate, and I know we've covered this in, again, previous conversations and earlier in this conversation, but when we're using the word right, it's not the moral side of right and wrong. It is skillful and thoughtful action and for me when, when we were planning out these shows and and the conversations that we were, were going to have right action and right activities was the one that i felt was possibly the easiest for me as somebody who is on this learning journey myself to, to grasp because the right actions is is very um obvious to me how i would um be able to control my actions and be able to make that decisions. But but I think I've probably oversimplified it in my mind to it just being about, well, you know, letting people through a door uh, or, you know, letting, uh, not getting road rage and not getting, you know, people to uh, annoy me when I'm out in terms of the actions. But the, the mindful thinking that the, the depth that the, that can take goes beyond just the everyday things, right, in terms of our actions. It, it is about being skillful and thoughtful about every interaction we have with people and our behaviour with them and how we act on the things that we do that perhaps we almost do and also pilot a bit oblivious to at, at times. Yeah, and I think that's really great. That's really important. 
when we talk about right action, we talk about everything we do. And we're doing stuff all the time. Even when we're not doing stuff, we're doing stuff. We're breathing in and we're breathing out. You know, and when one of the it's interesting when we talk about the word right not being moral, right or wrong thing, but rather skillful or considered. But actually, when you are thoughtful and considered and considerate, your skillful thought almost always becomes the same as the moral thought. You know, if you punch someone because you're angry, that's an unskillful action. It's not thought through, literally not thought through, it's just reactive. But if you do that, the chances are they might do it back to you. So that, which would not be a good result for you. So that action, if that had been thought about more, would not have led to a retaliatory punch which basically says the morality of not hurting someone is also in your own self-interest, generally speaking. Not always, not all the time. And this is where the Buddha was brilliantly sensitive to the realities of life. If you take, again, the the Old Testament or the, the Jewish Torah and the Ten Commandments, you know, they are pretty blunt, you know. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, boom, 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 boom. You know, and it's all thou shalt not. Um, and if you take what the Buddha said, he says, basically says, try not to take a life. Now, what does that mean? And this is where part of right action is to learn reality, learn the science as best we know it, so that you can be unintentionally killing. So, we breathe in, we probably kill about 10,000 microbes. There's not much you can do about it. I mean, sealing up your nose and your mouth <laughs> is not very skillful. No. But if you start to understand that it's more subtle than we think in terms of harming something that lives, then everything becomes more complex. And you so what mindfulness that's taking you back again from right action to right thinking. Start to think about these things. Start to see. Now, if we I'd actually put this in LinkedIn just the other day, if we had just stopped to think about the consequences of our actions on the landscapes and the seascapes of and the air of this world, we would not be in this climate crisis just now. If we actually thought about the harm it did to other living things, we would not be in the biodiversity crisis that we've got just now. It's all a result of lack of skilled thinking. Lack of skilled thinking leading to lack of skilled action. So it's become destructive, unintentionally destructive because of poor thinking. So right activity is activity that leads to the best result possible based on the best evidence and the best judgment you can make at the time, which requires us to be non-reactive. 
requires us to take our time and consider things and see things. And if we take the COVID crisis of the last few years, then at its best, you saw science engaging with governments on an almost constant basis as we were learning about this new virus and how it was morphing and changing and saying, now that we know that, what's the best action all else being equal? Knowing that no action that you take is going to be universally popular and knowing that no action you take, take will be equally distributed in terms of harm or, or restraint on people. But at least you can see the cogs moving in terms of the process of thought leading to action. And if that was done well, then there was minimal hurt given the reality of a situation. And essentially that's what right action is asking us to do all the time. You know, in a moment we can be tired and we can not notice the tiredness, which is lack of right thinking. And instead we just plough through it, which is not right action. So we start just working through tiredness, which means that the quality of our work suffers and it means the quantity of our work probably declines and it also means that we decline, we get tireder. Whereas if we notice it, which again is the mindfulness part of it, then we see that the actions we're doing are declining and it's because we see it's because our mind is tired. Now what I do is in those circumstances is if it's just mild tiredness, I'll just switch off and close my eyes as I'm doing just now and I'll breathe in very slowly and notice every single moment of the air going in and it's fresh and it's clear. And then, of course, I'll breathe out and it'll be quiet and it'll be peaceful like it always is. And that will soothe my tiredness and bring fresh, clear air in, which wakens me up and then I'll get on with my work. That's right activity based on a moment. So it's not necessarily, you know, we the ferries are too slow, let's build a bridge to the island sort of right activity. But it does encompass that. So it's, it's a broad range. It's everything that humans doing do needs to be skillfully thought about and mm. skillfully impl implemented. And in, in terms of the teachings, are, are, do we know whether the reason that right action is further down the, the Eightfold Path than right thought is because of the importance of the combination of those two being in the right order. Because I, if I if we use the example again of um, someone getting angry and punching somebody in the face, that the moral side of that, most people would argue that it is morally wrong to, to strike another person. But if that person feels like they're doing the right thing, so in their mind they're thinking this is the right thing to do, so the right action is for me to go and, and hit somebody, that stems from the fact that the those um, skillful thought and, and right thought hasn't hasn't been there. It's more reactionary. It's more uh, submitting to to anger or frustration, whatever it is that, that's created that reaction. But in the absence of right thinking, that person could be under the impression that they are doing the right thing. So, so 
do, do they work in that sense in, in terms of the, the order, a natural order that, that we're covering on the path, or is that again sort of beyond what um, the, the, the uh, teachings of, of what Buddha is trying to um, pass over to us? No, it, it is part of the process. Um, if you go back to the beginning of it, you know, which are the four noble truths, he's basically saying there's a lot of suffering going on, internal suffering and suffering between peoples and between humans and, and other living things as well. And that comes from the thirsts, the wants. And he's saying then you need to start to try and work on eradicating your thirsts. Stop having so many wants. Stop wanting this and this and this and this and this because when you stop getting it, you get frustrated. And stop hating this and this and this and this because it's part of life that it rains in Scotland. You know, So it's things like that. Now, when you start to work on that, working on using the path, working on your own mind, you start to see that you're maybe a built-in prejudice that you picked up because of your society, you know, when you were a kid. You start to see that that's coming up and that that's causing the dissatisfaction. There's a thirst based on the fact that you don't like these people in your country. And there's a thirst because you want no people like that in your country. So that's a classic example, you know, so if you take you know, the, the big bad wolf of, of all human time, which is Adolf Hitler. You know, if he had been able to work on noticing, first of all, his own thoughts and seeing that his hatred of Jewish people, his hatred of the Roma, his, his feeling that people who were mentally disabled were useless and, and in the way of the great regime, he'd see his own anger and he'd base his work, his mental work on reducing and eliminating the anger and the negativity that that creates in his life. So you're working to try and get rid of the dissatisfactions and all of our hurtfulness to other people and to other things is based on feelings of dissatisfaction about them. So if we eliminate the dissatisfaction, we eliminate prejudices, we eliminate hatreds, we eliminate all sorts of skewed thinking that, that happened in life. So it's that process, the understanding and the working on it, then the creation of a, of a mind, a brain that will think skillfully and will work to minimise these thirsts, these unhelpful sort of impulses. And from those actions, those actions of mind come higher quality speech and come higher quality activities. So it is a process. It goes off process a little bit later in the path, but that's more about the how you do it. Uh -huh. Perfect. And um, we'll obviously get to that in um, future discussions um, as well. It, it, the, part of our sort of ambition with what we're doing with, with these conversations is aligned to, to both of our sort of passion and involvement with family owned and family operated um, businesses and enterprises and again right action or right activity in terms of um, a family business scenario 
aligned to what you were just saying there about the the process that that um, can be followed and the order that can be followed. That I mean, obviously, that applies in in terms of the way in which families operate and interact with each other when there's a, an enterprise at play. But again, the the ones we've covered most recently, right speech, right communication, right actions, are, are possibly the areas where there is the the most opportunity for tension and um, misunderstanding. If if we're not doing that well, because the familyness and and the fact that you're doing it with spouses, parents. Um, siblings, uh, that side of it, there's probably a higher propensity for us to get our communication and our um, actions wrong there than if it was with somebody we just met in the street. Um, but, but what sort of guidance or advice can we give to families around the right actions or skillful actions and, and skillful activities to, to help them with the complexity that I mean, you've lived through uh, with, with your own family business? Sure, and this pertains to my own family business experience in very direct ways. In general, I would reiterate to any member of a family business the understanding that you have impulses. Everyone has impulses. That's the thirst that the Buddha described. You want certain things and certain other things annoy you. And that's the nature of life. And what you're saying is try to govern those. Try to work on your mind so that they don't dominate. Because if they dominate, you will be biased. You'll be skewed. You're more likely to say something negative to a member of the family with for whom you have a maybe a disparaging view. You're more likely to promote somebody that you like more, even if they're not necessarily the best person for the job. Um, so that's the general sense of it. But I'll give a particular example, still a very painful example for me, is we had to remove a brother in family business. Well, we say we had to, but we didn't have to. What happened was somebody, the brother, did something untoward um, and we checked it out with our employment lawyers because we wanted to make sure we were doing this right and we hadn't made a decision on it. And the employment lawyer said, well, if that was anybody else, we would dismiss them or you would get rid of them some way. And so we did that, which is all tick box, tick box, tick box. But of course, that didn't take account of what's the family going to do if a sibling dismisses or gets rid of or makes redundant another sibling. Um, so you can be absolutely right, business-wise, technically, but disastrous um, in terms of the family. And that requires right thought. The, the thinking should have gone beyond just doing it the right way, doing it by the book. There should be much more thinking going on to what's the implications of this? Not just today, tomorrow, next week, next year, but 10 years' time, 20 years' time, when their children and my children are of an age where they could be friends and, and thinking all that through. Now, I'm not saying that the final decision 
which is an action, was wrong, what I'm saying was there was a lack of thought, a depth of thought about it, and that that more skillful set of thinking may have and probably would have led to a better decision being made, even if you hadn't changed the result or the decision, the method by which you then discussed that and reached that decision with the other people involved it could have been so much more skillfully done that it would be more accepted. So things like that. And that is painful because that's a decision I was party to, I was part of. Um, and this is happening all the time in family businesses, maybe not in as big and a dramatic a way as they're out or they're in, um, but in tiny little ways, in people get annoyed at each other's salaries. People get annoyed at um, another example from my own life. We were in electrical retail, so we were dealing with the big global firms like Samsung and um, Sharp and Panasonic, Toshiba, Hotpoint, Zanussi, all those big companies. And they were, because we were big clients for them in a British context, they were inviting us to their goodies, you know, their weekends away or a week in Japan or a week in sort of Singapore or something like that. Now, it so happened that they quite wisely chose off-peak times for those because it would be less expensive. But it also so happened that my wife was a secondary school teacher who was not available to go on these goodies at off-peak times, so we hardly went on any. Whereas my other brothers, whose siblings were in more fortunate uh, professionals or jobs um, were able to go like maybe seven times in a decade and we were once in a decade if we were lucky. And that causes frustration, irritation. Now, that could have been so much more readily considered and thought about and decisions made about who takes what and why. And just the thinking is, was, was absent. Um, well, not absent. The thinking wasn't deep and broad enough to come to decisions that would smooth family relations rather than disrupt family relations. And every family business, I know hundreds of family businesses, every family business will have their version of that kind of story. The company car, you know, the, the, the spare house that the family have got on their land. Who gets it? Who pays for this? You know, it's... It requires deep thinking and that decisions are made on the basis of deep thinking. And that, again, we've covered this a, a, a little in today's conversation around the busyness of modern life and particularly when there is a business to run because they don't just run themselves. There's things that need doing as efficient as they can be. There's still stuff that needs to be done. And that, to me, creates potential barriers to the time needed in order to, to have right thinking and to, to be able to um, kind of process things in a way if there's a, a load of different things that are on your mind at any given point in the day, then it's harder to be thinking right but but that i guess is where mindful practice comes in where you slow that down you kind of 
you like you did earlier, you notice the breath going in and out, and that helps to slow that process down and the the kind of craziness that can be happening at a given point of any given day when you're running a business. To be able to have the discipline, to be able to say, actually, I'm going to take a moment here and I'm going to sort of recenter, helps to encourage that. And again, I think that's where the the mindful practice would be of use. Is is that fair to say? Yep, I'd say that it's a generalisation, but most people live winging it um, most of their lives, especially in work. We are just kind of on a call, you know, on a, on a wheel. We're just doing stuff, doing stuff, doing stuff. Somebody comes in and say, yeah, I agree with that. No problem. Yeah, okay, bring it to me later. Dun, da, 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 and say, all right, an email. Oh, no, I can't make it next week. Boom. There is no pausing. There is no quality of thinking going on. We are hoping that the mind that we were born with and that has absorbed thousands of things in our lifetime is going to be sufficient to the task. And that is placing your trust in the wrong organ. The brain is not a very uh, trustworthy organ. Um, It's what makes you angry. It's what makes you tired. It's what makes you frustrated with things. It's what makes you dislike that person and dislike that person's decisions, even if they're the right decision because you don't like that person. That's all the stuff that the brain does. So we have to, if we want to make good decisions and if we want to have a balanced, peaceful life within the busyness of life, we have to learn to pause the blooming thing. We have to learn to just stop. A few seconds, no, 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 that's a rubbish idea that's popped up in my head. I'll let that one go. I'll put this in its place. Your second thought is almost always better than your first thought. In fact, I remember hearing on another podcast years, a few years ago, a world-leading psychologist saying that the first thought a human being has is almost always rubbish. You know? Now, that's me paraphrasing it, but he was more or less saying that. See, never go with your first reaction. You know, and if you just pause it and let that fall away, a better one will come. It's a bit like, you know, imagining taxis, you know. The first taxi, the, the tyres are flat. You know, let that one go. The second, second one, safe to go on. So I think that in terms of process is, is how we do it. Now, what I've found practically is that I can get more done in a day than I used to be able to get done in a day because of my mindfulness, because of that pausing, and I can not only get more done in a day, I can also find time to go for a walk, to keep fit, to keep healthy. I can sit and relax while I'm working, rather than the work tiring me. I can just stop and just ignore every day and enjoy this cup and feel the coolness of the cup through the ceramic and actually realise I'm drinking water when I'm drinking water. And everything stops for the water because that's what I'm doing with my life at that time. And then I go back on to my work. Now, if you can learn to do that, you will be more productive. You'll be less drained at the end of the day, which means you'll be a better husband, wife, father, son, you know, daughter, uh, mother, whatever. You will be a better person 
going home. And that means that your relationships will be happier, which means you'll sleep better, which means you'll wake up better, which means you'll be a better person at work. And, and the cycle becomes virtuous. And this is, to me, what right action is. Everything you, sh you do should be, even in a micro, quick way of thinking, considered. And when you consider it, then you implement the best decision that you can make at the time and you are fully with that decision. You're fully there for the decision. Your mind hasn't yet gone on to the next thing. I mean, a silly example, from not from, from business, but, and this happened to me this, was either yesterday or today, early this morning. Um, I was doing something and I was annoyed doing it. It was housework stuff. I was annoyed doing it because I was wanting to do something else. That is a very common mental situation for people. They're doing something, but they're doing it reluctantly and they're annoyed because they'd rather be doing something else. As soon as I noticed it, which is mindfulness, I dropped it and I just got on with doing it because I was going to have to do it anyway, whether I liked it or not. So you might as well like it. And that is right thinking leading to right action. And I did it and it was enjoyable. And then I went and did the next thing. And it was effortless. But that could have been 10 minutes of annoyance. And being annoyed is tiring. So that would have led to a poorer version of me doing my work. Yeah, and I think, um, again, in terms of where we're um, hoping to have some impact with, with what we're doing here is to highlight to people that this isn't necessarily easy in the sense of you do it once and everything kind of it's yeah well done you're it's plain sailing from here it does take that practice it does take that noticing and being um mindful on an ongoing basis and it's progressive rather than it being something where it's like doing two, two sit-ups and thinking you're going to get a six-pack right it, it is something where you, you're going to need to continue to practice and develop in order to, to for things to improve and as a result that because it's that exponential element to it um not exponential the, the um incremental in terms mm -hmm. of the way in which things are seen you might not notice it on a daily basis but when you look back over time and think actually i can really see the big differences here you, you've had uh, is it 20 25 years of, of mm -hmm. doing your mindfulness practice and i guess if you look back to to before mindfulness was part of your life, it might, I imagine it looks completely different to how things look now, just in the way you sort of um, approach things. Yeah, um, I can't remember who it was said to me, one of the, I've been very fortunate in meeting a lot of really, really wise, old, almost stereotype sort of monks thing. And one of them said, the first 15 years are the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> and it came to mindfulness, you know, thing. Oh, well, thank you for that. And I think I'd be doing yeah. it for the two years at that point. You know, uh, but, but that that's life. It's, if, if you take if you see it logically as a as a train of time, each of us has got a mind that is genetically programmed to be a certain way, and a whole bunch of life experiences added on top. And that makes it all unique. Some people get lucky with that, some people get unlucky with it in terms of traits, personalities 
bad habits of, of mind, etc. But you are where you are, and then you start this thing, this mindfulness work, which is meant to be as many moments in a day as you possibly can, just considering things, boom, boom, boom. So if you've got, say, a million rubbish things in your head, okay, when you start, and you work over time, and maybe after a couple of years, you're down to 800,000, okay? Now, that's a big improvement, you know, sort of statistically, you know, that's, what, 20% better or whatever. Now, if you keep going that way, after maybe five or six years, you're down to 50,000. But you've still got a lot of junk in your head. But if you keep going after 10 years, you're maybe down to 20,000. And not only are you down to 20,000, but you've kept on putting in good stuff. So the good stuff starts to rise as it goes down. You come to a point where there's more good stuff in you, in your head that influences your thinking than bad stuff. And if you keep going that way, that's what he meant by, you know, after 15 years, it gets easier. Because you come to a point where, you know, and, and you don't like to sort of talk about these things because it sounds a bit showy, but, you know, I'm almost always at peace. Now, I don't mean I don't get annoyed, but I mean I rebound very, very quickly and almost effortlessly at it. I find myself being mindful without trying to be mindful. You know, I go for a walk and I'm automatically thinking, God, the sounds of those birds are absolutely beautiful. My mind has gone to my hearing and focused on the hearing. And then it switches to what I see. And then it switches to the fresh air in my face. And I'm being mindful and enjoying moments without trying to be mindful and enjoy moments. And so when it gets that way, then what you've actually done is reprogrammed your mind to such an extent through all those years of moments that your mind is now closer to where you would like it to be as a default position than you ever had in the past. And fingers crossed, it keeps going that way, you know, because, you know, I could be on this planet for another 20 years and that would mean almost as long as I've been doing this. So it'd be doubly as beneficial as the last 20 odd years have been. So um, that that's how it works. It's, it is hard work, but in, even in the early days, you can get a moment where you were about to have a row and you don't have a row and that feels wonderful. And you take that wee victory, that moment, or you can sit and you're tired and you just cup your tea and you notice the warmth and you enjoy the warmth, whereas normally you would just be too tired to even notice it. And you start to see that's it in action. That's it working. Now, if you take that row and you then put it in a family business context where a brother does not respond back in a rowing sense to a sister, but actually says, come on, let's just go and have a drink, you know? And that is what changes relationships and that's what changes family businesses. And that can be done within the first few weeks of being mindful. You just get more of it as, as, you, as you practice it. Yeah, fantastic. And in next week's um, conversation, on, on the next conversation we have, we're going to be looking at 
right livelihood, which I'm very intrigued to to delve into. Um, we'll we'll save that for uh, the next conversation because um, I think there's a, a, a rich conversation to be had there. Um, but I think that probably draws our, our chat around right action um, to uh, to a close today. But again, thank you. I, I feel like I'm cheating when I'm I'm part of these recordings because I'm learning so much myself. It's <laughs> it almost feels a bit um, selfish to to be then going. Well, this this is for the greater good because I'm learning so much from it as well. But um, it, it's been a, a really interesting conversation, and I thank you. Oh, absolutely, my pleasure as always. Thanks, Russ. It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole, and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in, so that clearer aims, hopes, and visions can be explored together in a positive, respectful, and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Programme to help you with this. If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information. Or you can email me, russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please feel free to share it with your family. And you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.